Welcome to MP Pulse, AAMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Alcohol use disorder, or AUD, is a medical condition, and it's characterized by a problematic pattern of alcohol consumption that then leads to compulsive drinking and a loss of control of alcohol use. According to data from a 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, more than 14.5 million people 12 years or older in the United States met the clinical criteria for AUD, and more than one in four adults over 18 reported at least one episode of binge drinking within the last 90 days. Now, this is a treatable disease, and it can safely be managed or have treatment initiated by most advanced practice providers. Using a patient-centric approach to AUD care involves not only the personalization of treatment, but also the development of individualized strategies to reduce those barriers to care. The stigma surrounding alcohol misuse is a significant barrier, and research suggests that up to half the people diagnosed with AUD don't even seek treatment because they don't believe there's a problem with their alcohol use, and another one in five feel they can handle their AUD on their own. In this engaging episode, nurse practitioners Dr. Lara Leahy and Colleen Berry share their experience and knowledge as they discuss various aspects of alcohol use disorder, and they also inspire us to think about the language we use and the importance of treating our patients with dignity, honesty, and respect while they're having to navigate the challenges of their recovery toward health. Now, this is not a behavioral problem, but a chemical change, and our patients deserve to be approached without bias or judgment and offered treatment for their disease process, just as we would for any other chronic illness. Thank you, Michelle, for that great introduction to a patient-centered approach to alcohol use disorder. My colleague Colleen Berry and I will be talking about alcohol use disorder today. And I am Dr. Laura Leahy. I'm a psychiatric and addictions advanced practice nurse with over 30 years of practice experience, providing care to the population across the lifespan, but limited to psychiatric and substance use disorders. Whereas my colleague Colleen is in primary care. I have a private practice outside of Philadelphia in Southern New Jersey, and I have lived and breathed the world of substance use disorder throughout my career and have been, you know, it's been a wonderful time to participate in this with the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, of which I'm a fellow, and I'm also a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing. So I will allow Colleen to introduce herself and kick us off here. Thank you, Laura. Again, I'm Colleen Berry. I'm board certified in family and addiction as an advanced practice nurse. I've been working within a behavioral health setting, providing primary care and substance use disorder treatment to patients with mental health or substance use disorder. I have developed a love for the treatment and the outcomes and have been doing excited to do more to educate other nurse practitioners on the treatment of substance use. I have since moved to a primary care practice 
And my goal is to help expand prevention, early intervention, and treatment for substance use disorder within the primary care setting. So we're going to start off our podcast today by talking about some demographics for alcohol use disorder in the United States. So for about 28.3 million people age 12 years and up have an alcohol use disorder, and that was from 2020, making alcohol use disorder the most common use disorder in the United States. Alcohol is a socially acceptable and sometimes socially expected drug that patients are having a hard time avoiding. Alcohol is everywhere. Alcohol is attributing to up to 140,000 deaths per year, and deaths among people 20 to 49 years old about one-fifth of them are attributed to alcohol. So alcohol use disorder is prevalent and patients are not sure of where to go for treatment for this. So they're leaning towards their primary care provider to help start them out. So Laura, could you tell us a little bit about the neurobiology of alcohol use disorder? Sure, Colleen. I mean, those are amazing statistics. And if we look at statistics of substance use across the United States between the opioids, alcohol, and other substances, and then add in suicide, which is kind of the whole ballywick of which I have of patient population that I work with, we would be the third leading cause of death in the United States, which is really astounding. We tend to parse these out, but I think it's really significant that we're talking about substance use and in particular alcohol use disorder today because it is so prevalent. And why is that? It's a chronic relapsing disease. It's a disease of the brain. And like many of our other chronic relapsing diseases, asthma, high blood pressure, diabetes, we need to approach it in that manner. But let me tell you a little bit about what goes on to that, into that neurobiology and why it's such a powerful pull in the brain that contributes to alcohol use disorder. We have various phases, basically three phases of alcohol use disorder. There's the preoccupation, there's the binge on the substance, and then there's the withdrawal. And we look at binge drinking versus heavy drinking in the same way. And we define those as basically drinking more than drinks in a sitting for the most part, and or 14 drinks per week for a man or seven drinks per week for a woman. So we really want to keep cognizant. That's not a very high number when you consider all things. So what goes on in the brain? Well, we have a couple of different parts of our brain. We have our primitive brain stem. Then we have our middle brain, which is our limbic system, our emotional system. And this is what, one of those major centers of the brain that contributes to the anxiety related to any kind of substance use disorder. The fear of going into withdrawal often drives this process of contributing to a use disorder ultimately. The amygdala, our fight or flight center, drives that fear, which then, you know, if a person is drinking and suddenly stops, they are looking for that reward system to take over as opposed to that fear of withdrawal. So we go in from the amygdala into that ventral tegmental area and nucleus accumbens. That's where the reward center it is so robust. We get 
beautiful dopamine surges that we can't get endogenously through our own endorphins that contribute to this wonderful reward, this wonderful relaxation feeling related to alcohol or other substances, depending on which substance will depend on the type of reward. But that reward then becomes you know, very intoxicating, if you will, and intoxicating, not in the way of alcohol, but just that euphoria that a person may feel. And that gets stored in the hippocampus. That formulates that memory. And when those memories form and the person is potentially going through withdrawal, they have that memory of that reward. So our prefrontal cortex then, which is our executive functioning portion of the brain, provides us with the insight and judgment of what we should do in certain situations. When we have an individual who might be experiencing that fight or flight, that fear, that amygdala overactivation, that fear of withdrawal, the prefrontal cortex isn't able to do its best job and say, you know what, maybe you've had too many drinks and shouldn't get behind the wheel of the car. Maybe you shouldn't take that drink at work because you might lose your job. That insight and judgment kind of goes out the window and that reward center takes over and says, you know what, you really need to take this drink because that's going to help you feel better from the withdrawal. And then we go back into the basal ganglia area where the individual may binge, taking five or six drinks in a sitting, four drinks, three drinks for a woman, become intoxicated, and then restart that whole cycle where that alcohol effect wears off, that reward wears off, and then there's potential for withdrawal. So this vicious cycle drives the neurobiology of the brain related to alcohol use and other substance use disorders. And it's incredibly powerful thing to overcome. So when we talk about it, how do we identify a person, Colleen, who might be at risk for alcohol use disorder? We can't really just screen brains or do a blood test as we might with other disorders, how can we identify these individuals in our practice settings so that we can get them the help that they need? You know, you're right. We can do an A1C in the office and identify someone with diabetes, but it's kind of difficult to diagnose someone with an alcohol use disorder. And you had mentioned it doesn't take much to get into that excessive or even that binge use of alcohol. People may want to have a drink after work, but if you do that on a daily basis, you're getting into that excessive use. And if you're going to a wedding or a party or a graduation and you have more than four or five drinks at that one setting, even if it's over a period of time, you're getting into that excessive or even that binge use category. This is not enough to diagnose an alcohol use disorder. This will give you a insight into what's going on with the patient and kind of lead you towards asking the next questions. So the next questions is usually in a primary care setting, we're gonna screen them and we're gonna ask the questions. How many drinks are you having? And then why do you think that you're drinking the way you are? Like you had mentioned before, what is it doing for you? How is it helping you? Those kind of screening questions are really important to try to get that conversation going. But those, just the, the audit C or whatever screening your facility uses is not enough to diagnose. So we need to dig deeper. And we're finding that one in six adults have ever discussed alcohol with their primary care provider. And one in four people who binge drink have ever discussed this with their primary care provider. So now we're gonna start asking the next questions. We're gonna to reach to that DSM-5 or you know, to try to get more insight into what other criteria would be part of getting that diagnosis. 
What do you think about, Laura, when you ask those questions? Well, I think, you know, the asking of those questions is really important. And it's really important, too, to keep those questions open-ended. If you ask a yes or no question, it shuts down the conversation. So we really want to know, I mean, like I said, like you commented, I use the question, how does this help you? How does it help you? How does the alcohol taking that drink really help you? And my patients look at me kind of quizzically and like, what do you mean? It's not helping me. I'm here. I'm having some medical problems. I'm, you know, sitting in your office because I've lost my job or I've had a DUI or my liver's failing or my stomach, you know, I have chronic reflux and it's not helping. But from my world, in terms of the emotional psychiatric component of it, it's relieving some sort of process, some sort of inter, you know, personal anxiety or depressive symptomatology that the patient may not be aware of. And trying to tap into those questions as to how it helps will help us do a better job as practitioners to be able to identify where we need to intervene. Is simply, and I don't mean to be dismissive in that way, simply an alcohol use disorder or is there comorbidity? I mean, it could be medical comorbidities. It could be psychosocial comorbidities. They've lost their house they are financially struggling, the individual just is going through a divorce, or they just had a new baby. I mean, even exciting and you know happy opportunities and things in life can also cause major stress for which people might reach to alcohol and often do in a celebratory manner. And that can then get out of hand rather quickly if it's if the individual is finding that reward from the alcohol and then missing that reward, that's where kind of cravings come in and the likes. So we want to ask those open-ended questions and then take that to the next level. If the person thinks that this, you know, this pattern of drinking, what asking questions like, does this pattern of drinking contribute to any difficulties in any of these areas of your life? Are you having relational difficulties? Are you experiencing physiologic you know, issues, legal issues, employment issues related to your drinking? And what do you think it would be like if you cut back or just reduced the drinking a bit? And asking those types of questions can be really helpful too. And that leads into some of the risk and harm reduction and development of a safety plan that we can do briefly in a primary care setting. You're right. And asking those questions and determining how many they say yes to is going to guide you in the diagnosis of mild, moderate, or severe use of alcohol. I have found in a primary care setting, sometimes the patients are going to minimize their use. Maybe they are having some negative effects, but they're not quite ready to admit to those. So that's when we start looking at their medical history. Have they been in the emergency room from a head injury, an altercation in a fight, a bar, or a domestic violence type situation? Are they having elevation in their liver enzymes? Is their hypertension out of control? Are they having skin issues that we're having trouble getting control of? So sometimes having the discussion, not only with the questions we're asking for diagnosis, but adding on these other things that we're seeing as, our, as we're doing our complete physical exam on the patient, including lab work, we can try to add to that to come up with a good diagnosis of what's going on. And again, the screenings, a lot of times these screenings that we're doing in the primary care setting are done by a medical assistant or even your nurse who's rooming the patient. So take that extra few minutes, look over that screening, and then go in the room and talk to the patient. Identifying AUD, in getting that diagnosis 
is going to start your road to treatment for this patient. Absolutely. And leading, you know, from that point, how do we engage our patient? How do we define their motivation to change? Because my motivation to help them be more healthy is one thing, but their idea of what might help them be more healthy could be a completely different. And this is where techniques like motivational interviewing can come into play and looking at the readiness to change process. Is this person even remotely interested in change at this point in their life? And given the status of their health, whether it's in a positive manner or a not so positive manner. And so utilizing that, those stages of change, the pre-contemplation, the contemplation, moving onward into the maintenance and hopefully recovery for our patient can be extremely important. Have they tried things in the past? Where, you know, are they interested in trying things again or trying something new to help them reduce the alcohol use that is interfering with their life in some significant manner to be attributable to, you know, decreased functioning across their life and also to improve their health overall health status. I really like to couch things in terms of health with my patients because there's so much stigma, there's so much shame and embarrassment that our patients experience when they you know, even recognize that their use of a substance may be getting out of control. And they're often embarrassed to come to us. And thus, as you mentioned, there's a significant minimization of the use that they are experiencing and the impact that use may be having on their life. So how do we help our patient recognize that they are? this is not good or bad? I have so many patients that come in and say, I had a bad week. You know, we were working on trying to reduce my drinking from five times a week to three times a week, and I just can't do it. So they characterize themselves as bad people and their use doesn't make them a bad person. It makes them unhealthy, possibly, mentally, as well as emotionally and physically, but they're not bad. So trying to take those words even out of our patient's language, not to mention our own, could be a really helpful portion of the treatment and intervention that we, that we utilize for our patients. You know, trying to get them out of that own self-stigma is very huge. So you know, I had a patient come in, her blood pressure was very high, and we had tried her on multiple medications to get her blood pressure under control. And her response was, why does everybody keep talking about my blood pressure? My feet hurt. And that's when I stopped and I started thinking about it. The blood pressure is not a concern to her. The concern to her is her feet. Her feet hurt. So if we were to take a few minutes, stop addressing what we know is wrong, and start addressing what she feels is wrong will sometimes get the conversation going. Same thing with alcohol use disorder. Maybe they are not ready to stop, but they wanna feel better. So we're going back to your conversation about health. What can I do to help you feel better? If you're not ready to quit drinking, let's talk about the things that you do wanna improve in your life. Maybe they're having, like I said before, a skin issue. We can't get their skin issue under control. Sometimes addressing it as, if we're able to reduce the amount of alcohol we bring in, that may help improve our skin because we know there's a correlation between heavy drinking and flare-ups of psoriasis, or your liver's hurting, or your blood pressure's out of control. If we can reduce our drinking for a brief period to see if our health starts to improve, 
then there's something there that we can start working on. So again, we, you know, we know what the patient needs to feel better, but we need to get them to feel the same way. We need to get them to understand that reduction in drinking is what they need to start feeling better. So kind of turning it around to bring that to their attention and let them bring that back to us is a good way to get that patient engaged. Absolutely. It's like coming in through the back door, if you will, you know, by, by addressing the, their own concern and then kind of bringing it around to where we as experienced healthcare practitioners may understand the etiology of that patient's front door condition, you know, coming from. So, you know, sometimes addressing it too, by looking at the patient's worst health outcomes. I'm thinking about withdrawal here. If we're looking at, have they ever had an experience of withdrawal? That is often, like I said, what drives that amygdala, that fight or flight, the fear of going through withdrawal, because it can be so devastating. Memory blackouts occur for, pa for some patients, seizures occur, delirium tremens, and it can be you know, really, truly a horrifying experience for patients with alcohol use disorder, especially if they've been drinking for a long time, to have those lapses of memory. And talking about those things can also help to normalize it for the patient, that we know that these things go on when someone is struggling with alcohol use disorder, that they know if they've stopped drinking for a few days at a time, they may have these experiences, not just the experience of a hangover where they may feel, you know, pretty down and nauseous and headachy and bodily aches and malaise for a 24-hour period of, or so, but going into that real true withdrawal from alcohol, which doesn't have its onset right away. That onset's going to come more like 48 to 72 hours or even up to 96 hours after their last drink. So they may say, wow, yeah, I haven't had a drink in three days, but the worst is yet to come, not the best is yet to come when we're talking about something like that. So looking at our patients and asking about those experiences as well, once we've confirmed that there is an alcohol use disorder, can be very life-saving for them in the long run. That brings up a lot of medical issues that I'm sure you've seen related to alcohol use disorder, you know, which may be moderate to severe. And, you know, so many of our patients coming in, whether it be alcohol use disorder or other substances, have tried to do this on their own for so long. They've been self-medicating and self-managing. So they come in and say, this is what I've done and this didn't work, but they're not, they're not under the impression that we actually know what might work for them. So they're not aware of what we call comfort meds or medications to help prevent hospitalization. They don't know about this and they didn't think to ask in the past. So they're coming in now saying, I can't quit drinking. I don't feel good when I quit drinking. It's not gonna work for me. And that's when we start leading the patient into education by saying, I understand the disease process. Tell me what kind of symptoms you have when you quit drinking and let me tell you what we have to offer to help you feel better while you're quitting. So this is where we start talking about medication for medication-assisted withdrawal. 
in the office. Tell me about your symptoms. Have you ever had a seizure? Do you have trouble sleeping? Do you get nauseous? Do you start having tremors? Tell me what kind of symptoms you have and let's start going over the medication. I call them comfort meds. I'm sure, Laura, you have them as well. Comfort meds as well, yes. Absolutely. So we have, you know, Zofran to help you with nausea. We have certain medications. I like Trazodone, other medications to help with sleep. We can do Vistaril for anxiety. We can do dicyclamine for stomach aches. There's a whole list of medications and you may have your own form where you have them, you know, the ones you're comfortable with that you list out and go over these with the patient. And they start to realize, hey, wait a minute, I can kind of give some of this to you and let you kind of guide me. And it kind of takes the stress and anxiety off the patient who feels that they have to treat this themselves. Absolutely. I mean, in addition to the substances you've mentioned, the comfort medications, if you will, quote unquote, I often use propranolol because it, it's kind of a multi-purpose. It'll help with the blood pressure increases that we see during that acute withdrawal period, but it'll also in the long term help with that essential tremor that many individuals who've had long-term alcohol use disorder develop. So, and it can also be used to relieve that anticipatory anxiety. So I might even have my patients when they know that they're coming home from work. That's a big risk time for a lot of my patients with alcohol use disorders, leaving the workplace and transitioning to home and bypassing six liquor stores on the way home where they feel like they need to stop and grab that you know, pint or that bottle of wine or that fifth of Jack or what have you. And you know, so I suggest to a lot of my patients, take that propranolol, take that visceral hydroxazine, take that medication, when you're leaving the office or when you're leaving your place of employment to help relieve some of that anxiety to get you to your next destination where it might be more anxiety producing. I also um, will use the benzodiazepines just for a short period of time because we know, especially with individuals who have long-term alcohol use disorder and very heavy alcohol use disorder, those that may have been drinking a fifth a day, which is not an uncommon phenomena for individuals, for some individuals, that is going to need something more to be dosed round the clock. And I stress that. I stress that some of these medications should be taken round the clock because there is a high risk of seizures when individuals are withdrawing. And we certainly don't want to have our patient have seizures and medical complications on top of the already stressful period of withdrawal. But propranolol has been a great medication for many of my patients. And then, you know, a lot of our patients also complain and come into the office saying, boy, you know, I don't know what's going on with my memory. And these might be younger people. I can't keep a train of thought. And when you come down to talking and doing a couple guiding questions, it comes out that they've been drinking a fair amount and all of a sudden their memory is starting to slip and they can't keep a train of thought and they can't remember to pick up this on the way home from work. So starting things like B1 or NAC, N-acetylcysteine can also be very helpful. I know we're you know, going to talk a little bit more about some of the maintenance medications that will help, but these are some of the tips that we can use in the short term to help our patients through that acute withdrawal period and get them back on the road to health. You know, this is a chronic relapsing brain disease. So we can't be treating a brain disease without understanding the symptoms of a brain disease could be memory loss or difficulty with their higher functioning. 
they may need closer follow-up. So this is why we're watching them very closely. We're having them in the office every day for the first week or so. We're giving them phone calls. We're doing close follow-up. If they're not remembering to pick up their medication, we're utilizing those pharmacies that can do delivery, or we're asking for like bubble packs where they can put those medications in a pack. The patient just needs to remember to take them. And having your nurse or your medical assistant calling them and reminding them, have you taken your medication? If a patient is going through withdrawal and we're giving them the prescriptions for the medications that will help them feel better, but not doing close follow-up to making sure they're actually utilizing those medications, they're not going to feel any better. And if they don't feel any better, they're going to go back to drinking because what you're doing is not working. So very close follow-up is what's going to really help these patients. I agree. And then moving from that close follow-up in this acute phase. What do we do about maintenance, Colleen? I mean, our patients, as you mentioned, this is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. So we can't just treat it and go through the withdrawal period with our patient and expect that, okay, once the patient's been off of alcohol and hasn't used anything in the past week, 10 days, what have you, that they're on the road to recovery. Yes, they're on the road to recovery, but it's the very early phase. And we recognize that relapse is a distinct and probably imminent possibility during this period of time. So as the brain clears and the patient is physically, physiologically feeling a bit better, I think it's, this is an important time to introduce the idea of long-term maintenance medications that are available to help them reduce those cravings that they're going to experience, reduce that heavy drinking, and ultimately retain their long-term recovery. And such medications, I mean, we have three that are distinctly approved by the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA. We have naltrexone, both in the oral, as well as the extended release intramuscular injectable form. We have disulfram, we have acamprosate, and then there are a couple of non-FDA approved, but medications that do still have a lot of evidence to support their use in treating long-term recovery from alcohol use disorder. And those fall under mostly the anticonvulsants like topiramate, gabapentin, and even baclofen. So talking about our patient, talking with our patients rather about these options is gonna be really critical at this phase because they're very vulnerable to the next, their next drink. And what will be the most helpful to them? Is it going to be a deterrent like disulfram that where they will become nauseous and begin to vomit if they drink while they're taking disulfram? Is it something that they're going to be able to take three times a day like a camprosate? Or is that going to be too taxing to remember? Or are they going to, would they be better served with something like the extended release naltrexone injectable, which is a monthly injectable? that has been shown very you know, distinctly to reduce alcohol cravings and reduce heavy drinking and maintain that long-term recovery for our patients. So it's important to get their input, like you had mentioned, but it's another thing to be very upfront and honest with your patient. Um, the first thing I say when introducing extended release naltrexone is that this medication will not make you sick if you drink. And the patient will usually look at me and say, well, why did you tell me that? Because now I'm just going to drink. And I tell them, it's because I don't want you to take the medication, have a drink, 
and think that you failed or think that the medication has failed. You have to understand that it's going to reduce your drinking days. It's going to help you stop thinking about drinking. I tell people it's like eating a large pizza and then going out to a restaurant and trying to order off the menu. You're full. So you're less likely to have that, that preoccupation that you cannot wait to get your next drink. And if you do drink, you're drinking less. And then the patient starts to think about it and say, well, why didn't anybody ever tell me that before? Because I've tried it in the past and I kept drinking so I figured it didn't work. So being upfront and honest with your patient and letting them know, and same thing with the disulfiram. You know, this medicine will make you sick. The other one will not make you sick, but it depends on what you're looking for. If you've tried naltrexone before, maybe we need to try the disulfiram. So it's gonna be based on the patient preference, but give them all of the information up front, and then you'll have to repeat that several times because again, their brain is starting to clear. So they're not gonna remember the first couple of appointments that you've discussed this with them. So feel free to go over that with them at each appointment to make sure that they're starting to get more clear on it. But then, you know, you're, they're going through the withdrawal process. You're starting to help them with their cravings. But now you got to start thinking about what's the underlying cause of this drinking. Let's get them referred. Let's get them into therapy. Let's get a mental health assessment. As a primary care provider, I don't want to send someone for a psychiatric exam while they're using substances. It's not going to be an effective way to do that. If I can get them off the substance, get their brain a little bit more clear, and then send them for that mental health assessment, Laura, I'm hoping that you'll be able to get a better picture as to what that underlying cause of the substance use disorder is. Absolutely, because you know if the brain is muddled with alcohol, with opiates, with any substance which is being misused or abused for that matter, it's not going to be, the individual's not going to be able to give us a clear picture and not going to be able to effectively participate in the therapeutic process of psychiatric, you know, psychiatric mental health care. So that's really important. And I just need to stress once again, you know, I come from the psychiatric and addiction specialty, but by the time a patient is able to get to my office, it's usually three to six months out. And thus, it's really important to start this treatment process in the primary care setting. And I'm hoping that, you know, Colleen and I are giving you all the tools to feel comfortable enough to minimally assess and begin to start those conversations and education processes, if not even starting some of the medication processes. Because if the person comes in, you have one shot. When they come in and they're ready to talk about this, it's really kind of a one-time deal. If a patient comes in and they don't feel that they were heard or listened to, it can really put them off for any number of months or years down the road because just the shame that accompanies alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders is just so overwhelming that the individual's experience says, why bother? And so I might as well just keep drinking. At least I feel, you know, feel quote unquote better during that period of time. So again, if, you know, as Colleen has stressed, seeing the patient more frequently during this period of time, especially if they're waiting for mental health referral or addictions specialist referral is really critical. And not just 
quote unquote, turfing them off to a detox facility or some fancy rehab, because you can do this work in the office as a nurse practitioner. You are trained to be able to do this work, to provide that those expert techniques, to provide that motivational interviewing so that you can assess your patient where they are. And, uh, you know, that's just a really important piece on this whole entire journey that we travel with our patients. And again, like we've said before, once we identify a patient with diabetes, if that A1C is high, we give them education on the disease process, and then we start medication, maybe refer them to a diabetic specialist. We refer them to education. We start talking about lifestyle modification, and then we do close follow-ups to recheck that A1C, to see if they're checking their blood sugars, to see if they've made some lifestyle changes. The same thing with a patient with alcohol use disorder. If we do decide, once we've addressed the fact that they have the disease process, we're going to start giving them a pathway to get better. So we're giving them information on the disease process. We're talking about medication. We're doing that close follow-up. And then when we do the referral, we're going to talk about the referral. We're going to get that release of information. We're going to let them know we're going to follow up with that. We're going to make sure they're going. And then if there's anything that we can do to help facilitate their outcomes, improved outcomes with their therapy or their psychiatric care, we're going to continue to follow up with that. We're not going to just say, here's your referral. Good luck. Let me know if you need anything else because we're going to treat it like any other disease process, and we're going to continue to assess them and see what we need to change or what we need to improve on to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. And Colleen, if we are working collaboratively, myself with primary care and other specialists, you're, you as family and primary care working with psychiatry and addictions, we really need to look at this as a team effort over a long period of time. What we know about substance use disorders and mental health disorders in our country is that it shortens the average lifespan by 26 years. That's really astounding. If you know the average woman lives to be roughly 80 and the average man lives to be roughly 75, that means our patients with alcohol use disorder, our patients with substance use disorder might be dying at 50 and 55 years old respectively for male and female. So that, you know, there's long-term medical consequences of alcohol use disorder. I mean, this is much more your ballywick, but the hepatitis, the Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, cirrhosis, all requiring this long-term monitoring of the chronic disease state, GI monitoring, malnutrition, and making sure that our patients have a full team of supports to help them through this process. I'm finding patients that have a long history of alcohol use disorder are definitely developing some fibrosis and even cirrhosis. And that's a close follow-up. Patients with cirrhosis should be scanned every six months to make sure that they're not advancing into liver cancer. So doing those scans, referring that patient to gastro is very important. But then again, you know, we're starting to see their bodies changing, they're coming off of the alcohol, maybe we need to reduce their blood pressure medicine. But again, getting them a referral to a dietitian, talking to them about increasing protein, we're watching their cholesterol, we're watching their electrolytes, we're keeping an eye on that cardiac rhythm. Alcohol use disorder can cause arrhythmias and cardiomyopathy. 
We're watching for that increased risk of esophageal cancer. We're watching for our patients that maybe are in a domestic abuse situation. We're making sure that their life is starting to stabilize. They're in a safe environment. So a lot of what we do as a primary care provider is we're starting to see the damage that's been caused by all the alcohol use that's been going on, and we're starting to slowly get them better. Um, and it can take a while. I mean, this, it can take a long time to start to recover from alcohol use disorder. Absolutely. We know that, you know, until a patient is able to reach roughly the five-year mark, of there will be multiple relapses in that first five-year period of recovery. And this is pretty consistent across substances of abuse and use and misuse, not just unique to alcohol use disorder. So once our patients are able to attain sustained long-term recovery at the five-year mark, the incidence of relapse drops to about 14%. So even then, it's not foolproof. Our patients are not immune to further relapse, even with sustained long-term recovery. So monitoring not only for the active disease state of alcohol use disorder, but all the other physiologic and medical sequelae that come with it. When we look at long-term alcohol use disorder and it's negative, probably one of the worst things that I've seen in my career, and it's a very rare phenomena, is Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, which is a combination of mental incapacity in terms of the patient really losing their memory, losing their ability to think and comprehend. There may be a psychotic process going on. And this is where it's really important to draw in collateral information from family members, from loved ones, maybe from employers or, or coworkers of the individual, because it may be very subtle. The person may come into your office and present just, you know, as if nothing was wrong, but in the long term, they may not remember that office visit and they may not remember to take their medications. And it's a very, very devastating process that can start very early on in younger people as opposed to older people. So if you have a patient who has a history of alcohol use disorder and they are coming in with memory issues, make sure that you're screening for Wernicke-Korsakoff as part of that. Because again, like many diseases, dementia in particular, Early intervention is going to be the best best ticket to a more successful long-term outcome. Getting that person on vitamin B1 thiamine because it is a disease of a deficiency of B1. And as Colleen mentioned, as you mentioned, that skin diseases that come from malnutrition can be devastating. So doing that full assessment of our patient, when you see them walk through the door, look at their skin, look at their eyes. Are their eyes becoming more yellow and jaundiced? I had a person that my children asked me that when they saw, why is that person's, why is that person's eyes yellow? So it's a pretty, there are some pretty distinct warning signs of alcohol use disorder that we can pick up through our observational capacities as practitioners. So don't neglect those as well. And getting the family members input is important as well. I've had patients tell me that they've reduced their drinking or even stopped drinking. And then a patient's family member or their 
maybe their nurse that stops or their case manager that stops out will tell you that there's empty bottles laying around the house. So getting that family input is really important to make sure that we're still on the right road. And if you're not, you can always bring that up to the patient to see if they're willing to discuss it further. Again, you know, this is a disease of the brain and maybe they're not fully, fully aware of what's going on in their life. But you had also mentioned, you know, moving them into that five-year mark, you know, of sustained recovery. Early on in their treatment, all through their treatment, it's going to be really important to start building those social support systems. You know, patients don't do well in isolation. They don't do well if all of their friends drink. So they need to start developing those sober support systems, friends that don't drink, friends that don't push them into drinking, and even identifying when they're in a situation like a wedding or a graduation, when is it time to leave? And how do you leave without everybody getting upset or trying to encourage you to stay? You know, I had a patient once who told me that he decided he didn't want to drink anymore and was asking my help. But then on, you know, social functions for his work, everybody would be drinking. And he felt like if he didn't drink, you know, everybody would ask him why. So those were the days that he relapsed, were on the days that he was at a professional event. And I told him, what if you had decided to become a vegetarian? What if you decided you didn't want to eat meat anymore? When you went to a social function and they offered you meat, how would you respond to that? Would you say, okay, I'll eat meat because they want me to, or will you say, I've made the decision that I wanna cut meat out of my life. Come up with a way that you wanna tell people that you have chosen to lead a different life where you're not gonna choose alcohol use anymore. And that discussion is really important for patients because again, you know, we want to get them through the withdrawal stage. We want to get them into that early and then hopefully into that long-term recovery. And if they don't start developing these, these skills now, then we're not going to be able to help them in the future unless we start over again. So let's get this going. Let's reiterate this. Let's continue to, to talk about this all through the recovery stages to give them the best chance of maintaining that, hitting that five-year mark and maintaining. That's such great advice. Colleen, looking at it from, you know, taking it from the vegetarian or I have celiac disease, I can't have gluten and things like that. How do we help our patients destigmatize themselves in many ways to maintain that long-term recovery and that long-term health? And I think, again, couching it as these are healthy behaviors. I'm working on my health. Alcohol puts weight on me. Alcohol doesn't make me, you know, my, my memory's not as sharp if I'm drinking having, you know, working with our patients to come up with some ways to be able to describe their situation that feels acceptable to them and allows them to accept themselves where they are. You know, I don't want to underestimate the power that the peer facilitated groups such as AA can have. Many individuals have sustained long-term recovery through the peer support of groups like AA and others. So that's another great way. And with the World Wide Web, you can log into a meeting anywhere, anytime around the world and just have your Google Translate on to give you, you know, if you don't speak the language that's, you know, coming from, you know, a country that's a 12 hour time difference from our own. So there's lots of ways that we can help our patients, lots of tips that we can offer them. And as healthcare practitioners, I think, you know, just kind of to encapsulate this, again, you as my primary care colleagues 
I have utmost respect for you and the difficulty it that arises in identifying and then beginning the treatment for patients with substance use disorder, with alcohol use disorder, or with psychiatric illness. But it's a necessary component. And I hope that Colleen and I are able to give you some tips here today that will help you feel more comfortable in meeting these patients where they are so that they can get on that long-term recovery train and make better health of their lives. You know, we're establishing this relationship with our patient and we wanna address all their medical needs. And this is absolutely a medical need. Our patients are there, they're in our office, they're admitting to use and they're asking for help. So we have to address this. This has to be one part of the medical needs of our patients that we're gonna discuss. Refer out if needed, treat if we can, but the more information we get about the disease process, I think the more comfortable most primary care providers will be at starting that treatment on our patients and getting them on that road to recovery. So thank you so much, Laura. I love working with you and having your insight as a psychiatric nurse practitioner because this patient's gonna need everybody on board to get that long-term recovery started. Likewise, Colleen, thank you. It's been a great project to work with you on. Thank you, Laura and Colleen, for joining us on NP Pulse. I want to thank you personally for sharing your expertise on this very important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. Be sure to visit the NP Collaborative Learning Network for discussions with our experts on AUD. The CLN, or Collaborative Learning Network, is an open forum to engage with peers and content experts. To join the CLN, go to anporg CLN. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share with your colleagues and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.